Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For years, we thought of the moon as a desert, a rocky, dry orb filled with craters with few signs of life beyond the occasional Earthling visitors. But now we know there's water on the moon. Scientists don't know much about where it came from. As the moon formed, water could have come from Earth's volcanoes in the form of gas. It could have been brought by comets and meteorites. Or it may have traveled to the surface via a solar wind that interacted with minerals on its surface to create water. Astrophysicists at Washington University in St. Louis want to find answers. The research team has been chosen as one of NASA's eight new Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institutes. They're part of a five-year cooperative agreement. Joining us today to talk about it is Jeff Gillis-Davis. He's Associate Research Faculty in the Physics Department at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's part of this effort. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Jeff, now for those of us who aren't space enthusiasts, why do we care about water on the moon? Uh, The water on the moon can tell us about the origin for water on Earth. Um, We know the moon has, you know, had an old surface and records the history of the early solar system. If water has been delivered by comets um, predominantly, then we know that maybe Earth's water was predominantly comets. And you say that we know that maybe. Is, is there a strong indication that what led to water on one would also have led to it on the other? Um, yeah, it's a pretty good indication. Um, it just we don't know what the timing is and whether Earth formed with water, and which case the water at the poles of the moon would actually be from volcanoes that erupted on the moon long ago. Um, or whether it's being formed there now by the solar wind, in which case it wouldn't tell us anything about uh, when the Earth got its water. So these would then be separate processes. Yeah. Okay. So you're looking into trying to figure out how it started there, because that could teach you all sorts of things. How do you even begin to crack a mystery like that? Well, taking, you know, one small step at a time. It's, you know, sometimes daunting to look at where the end goal is, but what we would do is break it up into small, you know, peaceable um, chunks. And with this survey grant, we are able to look at it from different perspectives. So I look at it through experimentation, um, studying how the space environment interacts with the surface of the moon and how that could create water. Uh, Another one of our scientists uh, is looking at how the water can actually fractionate. There's uh, different isotopes of water, predominantly oxygen 16, 17, and 18. And as they bounce around the surface of the moon, traveling from an equatorial position into the poles, those ratios will change. And what he is studying is how those ratios might change so that eventually when we get to the poles of the moon, and measure the water, we would know what to expect um, as far as the fractionation and be able to tell whether it came from a solar wind source, a a volcanic source, or whether it came from comets and meteorites. So are you attempting to replicate these conditions in a lab, or is this more just pure math on a a spreadsheet somewhere? We're actually conducting these experiments in a lab. Uh, So we try to as, you know, faithfully reproduce the surface of the moon and understand the components that are you know, going on and interacting with the surface and the ices so that we can you know, understand you know, through modeling and experiment how the water got there and what to expect as far as composition. So of these various possibilities, which do you see as potentially the most exciting? Um, I think one of the potentially exciting ones is that it actually came out of volcanoes from the moon, which would record a very early history of water being delivered to the Earth. Um, And it also suggests that the poles of the moon have potentially changed slightly over the last couple billion years because of very large impacts that uh, have changed it. We see that the 
the water distribution is actually not isolated at you know the very pole of the moon right now. It's actually kind of blurred over a big area. And one of the biggest things that it may show us is that, hey, the moon has changed its pole position a little bit, and the water is actually very old and, you know, of from the inside of the moon. Hmm. So we're talking about all this water. How much water are we even talking about? Is this right. a few droplets here and there? Um, at the In the permanently shadowed regions, there's lots. There are a million to a billion uh, metric tons of water at either pole, and that is equivalent to a couple million, you know, Olympic-sized pools of water. Okay, so, so it's big a size lot. lake. Yeah, big size lake, yep. Okay, so we've got this significant quantity of water just kind of hanging out up there. Whose water is this? That's, you know, one of the biggest questions uh, is who has rights to mine this material and how it might change the surface of the moon, and that's you know, for lawyers somewhat to do, uh, decide upon. But are there, there are lawyers? Uh, there are. There's, you know. I should know that. There's lawyers for everything. There, There is. Um, you know, and what that we need to piece together is some kind of treaty and divide, you know, from countries that do intend to go to the moon, you know, kind of like in an Arctic treaty, you know, what resources uh, go to which countries. And, you know, there are precedents for this, you know, in mining the ocean floor or even, you know, working and doing science in Antarctica. And is this something that could complicate the research you're doing at this point or? Um, no, the research that I'm doing is really trying to understand um, and how the water may have got there and how it may have changed with exposure to the space environment. So that when we go and make a measurement, we'll you know absolutely know with confidence that it represents you know one of the three main sources of water. And one of the big things is once we get there and start you know, creating bases, is this could be a potential resource for exploring the solar system. How so? As water, it's hydrogen and oxygen, and hydrogen is the fuel of choice for being, making rockets and rocket fuel. So what we have on the moon is an enabling uh, architecture for going throughout the solar system, because if we can mine the water, we can then, you know, make it into drinking water, we can make it into propellant to either recharge uh, spacecraft that are already in space, or use that as a launching point for, you know, the exploration. You can go with a small spacecraft and get to the moon and then fuel up, because it's very um, costly to launch things from the Earth. You can use the, the moon as kind of the, you know, base level to go throughout the solar system. So this could become this point of future exploration taking off from the moon as opposed to just traveling to the moon. That's correct. You mentioned this idea of the water on the moon being a source of drinking water mm -hmm. um, at some point. Do we know anything about whether the water that's there now is something that you and I could just have a cup of today and not suffer ill effects? Right. We know so little about what the water, uh, its state is, whether it's how much it mixed with dirt or organics or other ices. We know that there's probably carbon dioxide ice and methane ice and, you know, how those ices um, interact with the space environment and what kind of organic um, molecules they might make. It could potentially be hazardous, especially with some of the other um, ices like, uh, you know, sulfur-bearing ices, which we think might also be there. Those we would have to watch out and, you know, come up with a plan for how to mitigate any kind of dangerous exposure. So in addition to needing to build this base on the moon, we might have to build a water treatment plant or any number of, of it, things. It is possible, yeah. 
Definitely. You can see how these international treaties might end up becoming a, a bigger deal as this work continues. Um, and it, it was fascinating. As I was researching this segment, I learned that three countries have now successfully landed on the moon, but we've had two recent near misses. Um, I guess India was trying to land something That's and correct. it just sort of disappeared. Um, well, it didn't quite just disappear. They you know, lost contact with it and um, with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been in orbit around the moon for about 10 years now, um, it has, you know, a stock of history images. So we were able to locate where it actually came down and, you know, that it actually hit pretty hard and got spread across the surface of the moon. So, so it literally crash landed into so the moon. So it really, yeah, it crash landed. And, you know, that happens. And um, any country going to the moon for the first time has low probability of landing there safe the first time. Uh, with America history and with Ranger and Surveyor in the in the 60s, you know, we were at 50%. Hmm. And the first uh, six Rangers that went to the moon, our first attempts, they, you know, failed for one reason or another. So we really can't judge India. Uh, for... Definitely not. You know, they have, you know, a great uh, space um, faring nation and, you know, they're our competition and now, friends. Both. <laughs> I saw earlier this year an article on Inverse.com noted that in the last 60 years, humans have accomplished some incredible explorations of our nightly visitor in the sky. But it has also meant that humans have inadvertently turned the moon into a cosmic junkyard. And the more countries shoot for the moon, the more space wreck is left behind. How much having these other countries and having various things crashing into the moon or people visiting it, how much is it changing the very material that you're hoping could lead to the answers that, that projects like yours are looking for. One of the biggest worries is these permanently shadowed regions where the sun never shines are, are cold. They're, you know, 25 degrees Kelvin. Um, so any volatiles that have gotten in there over time have stuck. That's why they're important. And when you say a volatile, would that be so, detritus from a, a space landing? Or? Uh, no, it, more gases. So water or carbon dioxide or any kind of uh, gas that has bounced around the surface of the moon can find its way in there and get trapped for geologically long periods of time. So right now, we think it's still pretty pristine. If we start landing rockets nearby, all of that propellant that comes out of the rocket is a volatile, it's a gas, and could land itself and create a layer on top of the, the ice that we're interested in. So, you know, that article talked about how Apollo astronauts have left junk and, and spacecraft have, um, you know, hit the surface of the moon. But, you know, the surface of the moon is pretty big. So these things are, are not too noticeable. But we don't, of course, want to trash the moon. But one of the things that has very broad reaching effects are, you know, rocket plumes and the dust that they would throw up and how they might change the ice that, you know, we're so interested in because it can tell us about the early history of the solar system. So simply by trying to get closer to study this stuff, we might be contaminating it. Exactly. So, so what we, kind of steps can you take to try to mitigate something like that? This is a new frontier that we're trying to figure out. Uh, one of the possibilities is that the rocket fuel we use is very uh, pure and also doped with certain isotopic elements so that we can use it as a signal and not be confused with what's there and have it intermingle and not be able to kind of get off that background noise from the rocket plume. So with this project that you guys are now doing with NASA, um, what kind of timeline are you on? So we have five years. And um, in that five years, we plan to be able to, you know, give NASA um, a good enough record of how 
closely you need to be able to measure the isotopic ratio of the ice to identify its source. And one of the things we're also working on is, from the remote sensing perspective, being able to map these uh, ice distributions more accurately. Right now, um, we don't have a great way to map them because, again, there's no light that shines in these craters. So we're trying to come up as part of this proposal is to find more active remote sensing using lasers to identify where the ice is so that we can go to a, a, a correct location and also be able to measure its volume. You know, like I mentioned before, it, somewhere between 100 million and a billion metric tons, it's you know big error bar. So being able to you know narrow that down a lot more. And that's all within the next five years. Well, we're taking the steps to you know you know me make these measurements so that we can you know give them the information they need to get the spacecraft. So that would be after the. The, the next five years. Okay. So we're making the fundamental measurements and then NASA will use those, I think, to um, set up the criteria for the instruments that would fly on spacecraft. So we're still looking at quite a few years before we're actually going to have this base on the moon or be drinking the water that you guys are researching on the moon. Yeah, for, you know, big scale. But I think in the next five years, there's lots of these commercial lander payloads that NASA is working with that will be landing and doing some kind of proof of concept studies for in situ resource utilization, which is the use of the ice for water or making propellant, uh, and maybe even making some measurements. So the clock is ticking and we need to you know, get our results so that they can form these landers. Well, Jeff Gillis Davis of the Washington University uh, Nassau Project, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.